Hi there, welcome to Western Water 101, where we talk about the history, future, and issues of water in the Western US. I'm Sarah Porterfield, Water Policy Associate for Trout Unlimited. I've lived all over the West from growing up in California to college in the Pacific Northwest to working as a raft guide in Utah and now living in Boulder, Colorado, where I work connecting federal policies and programs and on the ground projects with TU. And I'm Brennan Sang. I was uh, born and raised in Michigan, but I spent almost a decade in Montana. And like a lot of Easterners who headed West, I was struck by how different our relationship to water was in Michigan compared to the high desert of Yellowstone country. As digital director at TU or Trout Unlimited, I've read a lot about water in the West and our efforts out there, but I don't really have the historical, political, or scientific background to really grok all the issues. So, so Sarah, I'm really excited to you know talk through this and put our work into a larger context. Great, and as this is our first episode of this six-part series where we'll be exploring Western water, I wanted to give a little bit more of a background to myself and why um, I'm the one that's talking about these issues here. Um, so I started working on the rivers of the Colorado River Basin in um, Utah and Colorado with the Colorado Outward Bound School uh, towards the end of my time in college and starting about 2005. Been there for way too long probably at this point. Um, but with Cobbs, I learned how to row a boat, how to um, teach students about the geology and history and ecology of the Western river systems that we had. And somehow there I became the default, what we called the Western waters talk giver, where right. you know we would I would draw out the seven states of the Colorado River Basin on the sand. I would give students maps and they would build the dams and the mountain ranges and oh, wow. you know the rivers and tributaries and cities that are all in the basin. And then we'd talk about where, you know, what kind of water use um, went on in the basin, where it went, um, how it was transferred out of the basin, out of the watershed. And from that, uh, that interest led me and experience led me to doing a PhD in Colorado River Basin history um, at the University of Colorado Boulder. Uh, I finished that up a few years ago and then came to work as TU's water policy associate, um, working kind of as the middle layer between connecting on the ground projects that TU does to federal programs and uh, as well as advocating for changes to those federal programs to make our projects work better. Right, kind of the... Uh... The, the filling in that Oreo cookie. Uh, like yes, you, yeah. exactly. Yep. Yeah. So for those of you that aren't familiar with Trout Unlimited, we're a cold water conservation group. Um, we we have a, over 350,000 members and supporters with 387 chapters across the country. Um, and a lot of that is a lot of the work we do happens at the grassroots level. But uh, we also have a pretty large national presence as well when we where we work across state lines and on the federal level. Most of what we do we do with communities across the country, um, trying to care and recover rivers and streams using hard work, community, and the power of people. And we also try and do this while respecting the wisdom of nature and using a scientific lens to, to look at the, this work we're doing. I was uh, really surprised, again, I mentioned this a little bit, moving out from the East to see how different the work we did in the West was to the work that we did in the East. It's just a very different world. The, the way that we deal with water in general, not just the conservation issue of it, but the way that we deal with water use um, is incredibly different than it is in the East. And it really took me spending some time out there to really start to understand all of that. 
Yeah, that's great. They, the East and the West are very different worlds in terms of, um, you know, the amount of water and how we deal with water um, legally, culturally, you know, economically, etc. And in this series, we'll be looking at the history of water use and development in the Western U.S., as well as the present day challenges and opportunities in the region. Um, and we'll be taking a look more closely at how TU, as you mentioned, Brendan, works at all of these different levels, right, to affect change that makes, you know, better fishing, better, uh, healthier ecosystems, thriving working lands for agricultural producers, et cetera. I think that's a, a uniquely TU approach, or at least an approach that we're all really proud of. The fact that we we are very collaborative. We, we try and find answers for everybody and also, you know, hold on to these uh, these important ecosystems with that, again, are, are very different uh, all over the country. Yeah, so we'll go over some of the things that make Western water different and unique from the way that water is used or thought of throughout the country. Um, and these are, uh, we'll go into depth on each of these, but aridity, the prior appropriation legal system that governs water use in the West, indigenous water rights in the West, uh, and large scale infrastructure um, like big dams and pipelines, etc., that store water, move water around the West uh, because it's such a dry region. Just a note on that, we're both speaking as, you know, Euro-American white uh, people, you know, Euro-American descent, white people in this world. Um, so that's the perspective from which we're coming. Um, and yeah, to talk a little bit more about aridity, right? If you are from the East or you're from the Midwest and you travel as you did, Brendan, or, or you know, move to the West, yeah. it is a pretty striking difference, right? Like what were, what were some of the differences that you noticed between, you know, your home in Michigan and, and Montana? Growing up, I was never more than 40 miles away from Lake Michigan. So water was not something that we ever really thought about, you know, having having fresh water. We we didn't really have, you know, fires. It was a big thing for me. The first year I lived in in Montana, we had the, the, a pretty heavy fire season, and that was a whole new thing to me. Um, and then I'm trying to understand how, you know, snowpack enters into that, you know, thinking about, you know, the water that comes down at it comes down in the winter and how much that stores water that that you're going to need throughout the rest of the year, um, mm -hmm. both for, you know, agriculture, but also for for me, it was mostly about fishing. Right. So the the water that was held high up in the mountains, um, if it all if we didn't have a high snowpack, the rivers were going to be really low and they would get warm enough that we wouldn't fish them. And that was uh, that was pretty different to what I experienced over here in Michigan. Yeah, yeah, that and that hits on this this really big difference, right? The amount of precipitation that happens, you know, east of. Um, generally, we think about it as being the hundredth meridian, which kind of runs, you know, up through the Panhandle of Texas, Oklahoma, and northeast okay. of that. Generally, um, this is changing a little bit now with climate change, but generally east of that 100th meridian, uh, there's more than 20 inches of precipitation per year. And west of that, there's less than 20 inches of precipitation per year. So growing up in Southern California, you know, I didn't have a great grasp of water politics and policy and use and development, etc. Um, but I do very clearly remember the droughts of the, you know, 90s growing up in California and having that in the news and seeing the, um, as John Fleck says, the the drought picture of the cracked, dry lake bed or stream bed, right? Um, right. And so that's been the defining feature of the West, right? That that this um, 
uh, reduced precipitation when compared to the east, right? For Euro-American settlers moving into the west from the east, this presented uh, what seemed like quite a challenge and a difference. And for Euro-American settlers, it was often something to um, to be changed or to be fixed, right? And that often yeah. involved moving water out of its natural channels away from, you know, the stream in which it ran, maybe to another watershed for irrigation, for mining, et cetera. Yeah, and that's a, you know, that's a big difference. So the, the average U.S., precipitation is around 30 inches. So less than 20 is a third less water that falls, right? And that's 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 pretty huge. And you know, where where I live now, it's 33 inches. And you know, so it's a, a little bit above average, but I, I can imagine people moving out there and saying, wow, there's not enough water, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And but you know, that lens of enough really comes through the purpose that they saw in this land. You know, this this idea of developing this land, this aridity was an issue because it didn't fit into their ideas of what land should be and how it should be used. Yeah, right. And and uh, I, of course, want to acknowledge in here that indigenous peoples lived throughout the West for millennia and yeah. had incredibly sophisticated systems for irrigation for um, I was reading something recently, you know, for kind of water, a water rights system, the way that we might think okay. of it today. Mm-hmm. Um, and that indigenous people lived and thrived and continue to live and thrive in this, these communities out here um, long before Euro-Americans showed up, right? Um, but right. for Euro-Americans, it was largely that shift in precipitation, in aridity that drove them to think that this was a landscape that could be changed, that could be in the parlance of the you know 19th and early 20th century, could be reclaimed, right? right. That there was a way to make the desert bloom uh, and reclaim this desert from, uh, you know, from its its um, its dry and arid and and what seemed like kind of desiccated self uh, right. to make it bloom in this sort of um, Western kind of Christian mission sort of way. There was all this land. I mean, you when you and it's I think it's important to understand the frame of mind that a lot of people were in while these settlers were making their push to the West. And that was that they were looking for a place to start their life over, you know, and the lived experience that they had was of a certain sort of life on a certain sort of land. And they got to this place and it was different. And to them, that was something, you know, that was something to fix. And they they worked, came up with pretty ingenious ideas to try and move stuff around. And, and a lot of those systems are still, are still there. And a lot of those systems have, you know, down the road caused a significant you know, significant issues. But I think it's important that we remember that the, the goals of those folks weren't necessarily to cause those issues. Those those goals of those folks were to find a way to you know, make their way in this new to them land. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And these these ideas of, you know, kind of the Jeffersonian yeoman farmer, you know, the right. um, the, you know, man and his family moving west and settling on 160 acres under the Homestead Act. Right. And, yep. and this being a way to, um, you know, ensure American democracy. Right. Uh, those were also um, supported and advocated for by uh, federal policy through the 19th century and into the 20th century as yeah. well. Right. Um, and as you're saying, right this is this is the basis of the system that we have today we can't necessarily judge those actions and those sentiments by the um 
the values and standards that we have today, right? That'd be a very presentist argument. We yeah. can recognize, of course, that there's inherent um, racism in those policies, like the removal, um, attempted genocide and erasure, uh, or genocide and attempted erasure of indigenous peoples, right? Assimilationist right. policies. Um, and at the same time, understand that say the legal system for water rights while has it has done damage to some communities particularly indigenous communities it is the system that we have today um and it's what we've got to work with at this point right and that that was another thing that struck me moving from the east out to the west was the way that water was allocated is is significantly different from from out here yeah, that and that takes us to our um, second point of, you know, what makes water in the West different than other places. And it's this um, legal system governing water, governing water rights, water allocation. Uh, and this is called the prior appropriation system. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, it's the legal basis for water rights that we use in the West today that dates to about the uh, 1860s or so, or sorry, okay. um, 1840s, uh, 1850s, about the mid 19th century, right? My, as a Californian, I should know when the gold rush happened. <laughs> um, there's a reason there's some sports team named the 49ers. Um, but this uh, idea of um, one, that, that the West is really dry, right? So often right. um, in order to do things like mine or um, grow crops, it necessitated in the, the way that it was done, moving water out of its natural channel and transporting it to somewhere else, right? And yeah. this this sense that there's a limited quantity of water um, paved the way for this, this system of prior appropriation. Um, and so as you can guess from this, this name, prior appropriation, right? Yeah. There's a priority system involved. Another mm-hmm. way to think about this is the first in time, first in right. Um, it's okay. also called the miner's right because it grew out of uh, mining in California and Colorado and other places where valuable minerals uh, and metals were discovered in the mid to late 19th century. So this would be someone showing up and saying, I have this claim here and I need to move water to this claim or I have this claim along here and I need this much water to water my crops or this much water to turn the wheel to uh, to help me with my mining operation. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, in the West, water is water rights are separate from uh, land right or Hmm. land ownership um so just because you own a piece of land doesn't mean that you automatically own any water that might flow across it right these are separate Um, and this is very different than um most of the midwest and east where uh, what's called the riparian doctrine governs water use which is a a, essentially a sharing system right if you own property that touches a creek or a river or a lake you have as equal right to that water as everybody else whose property touches, you know, that body of water um, to a reasonable use, right? You can't deplete the entire stream, et cetera, uh, or use it for reasonable reasonable purposes. Um, You know, but in the East, it's not as, agriculture isn't as reliant on irrigation. Yes, you can water crops, but you can also partly rely on rainfall, right? Um, right? There's more sources of water potentially available that are closer than somewhere like the West. Right. You've got, you know, 50 percent more precipitation than you do in the West uh, on average. Right. Right. Yeah. For instance, you know, some of the 
biggest agricultural centers uh, in the West, like the Imperial Valley, the Yuma Valley, uh, those areas are in the driest part of the United States. You know, they're in the um, uh, Mojave Desert, Colorado Desert, right yeah. at the border of California, Arizona, and Mexico. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's some of the most productive farmland, right? If you have lettuce in the winter, it probably right. came from the Imperial Valley. Um, yeah. They get, I want to say it's uh, two to three inches of rain a year, maybe. Wow. Right. Um, But they have the Colorado River there uh, close-ish, close enough to transfer water to these agricultural regions and and grow crops. So the way that this works, again, going back to that, that first in time, first in right, is that people would put in a claim for a certain amount of water or a percentage of water or how how did they, they pull that together? Yeah, so let's say you are, uh, you know, you come out to Colorado here where I am on the on Colorado's front range. Um, I'm in Boulder, Colorado, and you come out here in, let's say the um, I'm probably going to have my timeline messed up. Not a historian anymore because I'm real bad with dates. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But, you know, you come out to Boulder and you want to settle in, let's say, the, you know, 1860s, 1864, let's say. Um, and so you come out here and, and decide to homestead, but the the homestead, you know, tract of land that you get from the um, general land office is, you know, let's say it's a quarter mile away from Boulder Creek. Okay. Um, and because, you know, there's not a ton of rainfall out here, I don't actually know what Boulder's annual average precipitation is, but I'm going to guess it's probably around 15 to 20 inches a year. Okay. Um, you know, that's not quite enough water for you to grow crops without irrigating. So you um, file on a water rate uh, from Boulder Creek. And let's say that you're the first person here to do that. So your priority date for filing that water right is 1864. Um, Mm -hmm. And you will file for, let's see if I'm also not a lawyer, let's see if I can get all the elements right. You'll file for the date of that you first diverted water, so 1864. You'll file for an amount of water that you will use, um, the time period for which you'll use it, right? So irrigation season is, it's changing with climate change, but April, May ish to September ish, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, For that amount. So X amount of water over X amount of time to a beneficial use. Uh, So that beneficial use in your case would be growing crops. Um, It could be mining. It could be now, you know, in the last half century or so, ideas about this are changing. Beneficial use in many places now constitutes in-stream flows or environmental benefit, but it certainly didn't in the mid to late 19th century. I'm going to say so, that I'm, I'm going to say I'm growing crops. I'll stick with, I'll stick with right, the yeah. <laughs> agriculture. Personally, I'm, it's a little more appealing to me. So, yeah. Perfect. Yeah. So, so you're growing crops on your 160 acres that you've gotten um, from the Homestead Act and uh, you've diverted that water. Now, let's say, you know, someone comes in a couple of years later, if 1866, they file a water right for, uh, for, you know, a beneficial use. They're a couple of years after you. Mm-hmm. Um, Someone comes in later that year or the next year, 1867, 1868, they're filing water rights. Now, if there's a really dry year, um, probably like the one that we're going to have this year, uh, Mm -hmm. given how little snowpack we have, you know, um, the way that the priority system works is you're first in line. You got there in 1864, right? So you're probably going to get your water. But that guy who got there in 1868 or or later, you know, maybe it's 1902 or whatever it may be, they may not get their water because there's this priority system, right? First in time, first in right. If you got there right. first and there's a dry year and there's not enough volume of water to go around in that year to fulfill all those existing rights, uh, folks start um, not getting their water 
based on the latest priority date, right? So right. in the West, like a, depending on where you are, but you know, a mid to late 19th century priority date is, is pretty safe. You're probably gonna get your water, anything filed after that. Um, you know, it kind of depends on where you are, but they'll start kind of knocking that down based on priority. Um, and that's right. called a, a call, right? That there's okay. the, the priority, folks who are in first priority call their water uh, so okay. they can invoke their priority. I mean, you have to have some sort of system and it, I think it, it makes sense, but it, it, it's interesting how much it sort of feels uh, like a dibs system, like a, a sort of convoluted, mm -hmm. like, yep, I call this, this much water. It seems like it's, it, it's worked. It's worked for some people in some places and, you know, at some times, um, right. but, but it is the system that, that our legal water system is based on in the West, right? And, and water rights are, the federal government can hold some water rights, um, very few, um, uh, they're called federal reserved rights, uh, but for the most part, um, water law is determined by the states and held by the states. So okay. the Western states are all a little bit different, but generally they all do use the prior appropriation system. It's, it's, it's fascinating. It's, it's so different. And I mean, we being in Michigan, we do have some, you know, we have these shared bodies of water. We're, we're surrounded by big lakes nearly, and we do have to have some conversation across state lines around that. But that's just, there's just a lot of water there, you know, and so there are some arguments about what we're going to use that water for. But there's not a sense of scarcity when it comes to water here. So it's it, the, the stakes aren't immediately that high. Yeah. And it seems like, you know, from my experience looking from the outside that, you know, places like Michigan or, or other folks that, or other places in the Midwest or East, the particularly Michigan, since it's been in the news, you know, over the past however many years, it's been five or eight years is water quality. Right. And, yeah. and even the algae blooms in the Great Lakes, you know, in the 60s, um, I think it was 1969, there were big blooms. Right. And that was part yeah. of that, along with like the Cuyahoga River burning in the same year, which had happened before. Yep. <laughs> but there's this confluence of, um, you know, environmental disasters that happened. I think it was 1969 um, that kind of raised public consciousness about this. Right. So that that water quality issues like we see in Flint, Michigan, right, with lead yeah. pipes and, and um, all those are, of course, you know, their environmental justice and equity issues as well. Right. Um, but right, the concerns you're talking about, there might be a scarcity of, of quality water, of safe drinking sure. water, but there's yeah. not a scarcity of quantity of water in general. So this sort of, uh, this prior appropriation system, this kind of like a first in line dib system, you know, was obviously put together by Euro American settlers, but that does sort of leave out some, you know, the people that were already there, you know, the indigenous Americans that that were already there. How did we handle their rights, their their requirements for water? Yeah, so indigenous water rights are are the third sort of defining characteristic of Western water. And of course, indigenous peoples have, have and use water throughout the country, have for yeah. millennia, still do today. Uh, but one of the um, facets of water in the West not only is um, water quality in a lot of places, but also um, are these water rights quantified and settled? And I'll talk more about what that means mm -hmm. in a minute. Um, often in many places in the West, they're not. Right, because quantification in a in a place that's perceived of as water scarce or is water scarce, right? That you need to quantify how much water you have, right? Um, as well as access to actual water, right? If tribes have a, a settled, quantified right, can they actually access that wet water, or do they have water on paper, right? And right. We'll talk more about this in a minute. Um, of course, indigenous water use predates any other 
uh, use here in the West. Um, tribes have, have been here for millennia since time immemorial, and they're still here, right? They're still thriving yeah. um, communities throughout the West. Um, uh, and they're also, as we were just talking about, right, with um, environmental justice issues in um, the Midwest and, and with water quality, right? Uh, there are lots of environmental justice issues for tribes um, in, uh, in the West today, particularly as we have seen with COVID-19, right? Access to clean, safe drinking water in places like the Navajo Nation or lack of access right. have really exacerbated the effects of the pandemic. Um, yeah. So it wasn't until 1908 that uh, we that the United States government recognized indigenous water rights uh, and placed them into the priority prior appropriation system. So but before that, it was whoever filed something, they were first in line. Right. So it, it, without a thought for the folks that had been here forever. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it wasn't until this 1908 Supreme Court decision, which gave us what's uh, now called the Winters Doctrine, that um, uh, indigenous water rights were were federally legally recognized and therefore had to yeah. be recognized by states. Um, so the Winters Doctrine decided that uh, tribes were uh, tribal water rights dated to the date of the establishment of a reservation. Hmm. A lot of these okay. reservations were established in, you know, the mid 19th century ish. Right. Um, there's obviously some some variation there. Uh, but generally, as we talked about with prior appropriation, right, that's going to give you a pretty early priority date if your reservations yeah. established in 1840s, 1850s, 60s, etc. Mm -hmm. um, and the. Uh, the amount of water that tribes are allocated in the Winters Doctrine um, was a quantity of water sufficient to fulfill the purposes of a reservation, which is often huh. irrigation in the West, right? Right. Okay. So more of this idea of kind of fixing these areas, right? You know, you can claim the amount of water required for you to grow crops in our Western idea, idea of how crops should be grown. Yeah, exactly. You know, and this is this is 1908. This is still very much in the um, push for assimilation for tribes, right? This is part right. of the Dawes Act mm -hmm. that started the era of allotment, which the goal of that was to break up reservations into the Homestead Act size of 160 acre parcels uh, for indigenous peoples to live on that 160 acres and to become that kind of Jeffersonian yeoman ideal, right? Um, there are some water rights, and again, I'm not a lawyer, not an expert on this, but there are some water rights in the West that do date to time immemorial and are oh. um, for the purposes of uh, indigenous culture, uh, tribal culture, ceremonial reasons, etc. Um, but the Winters Doctrine is kind of the main doctrine governing this uh, water, Indian water uh, rights in the West. Um, and so at the moment now in the West, um, not all tribal water rights have been um, settled and quantified, right? So um, in the Colorado River Basin, for instance, I think there's there are 29 tribes um, in the Colorado River Basin and um, 12 tribes have uh, some or all of their claims as yet unresolved, right? Wow. So these tribes out of the 29, some of them have part of their water rights um, settled, like the Ute tribe in uh, Utah. Mm -hmm. uh, 
but some of them don't have any of their water rights settled at all, right? So what that means is that if you don't have your rights um, settled, the these tribes can't get access to that wet water. Right. Uh, and, you know, put running water in homes. You know, indigenous homes are far more likely to lack running water or to lack clean right. and safe drinking water than the country overall. And that's because they've not been able to get that officially quantified, right? To, to go mm -hmm. and say, I need X amount of water over this period uh, for this acceptable reason. So they haven't gotten their, their place in line. Yeah. And these are, you know, these are long legal Negotiations, right. negotiation settlements, they take a long time. Not an excuse for why it hasn't been done, but the reality of, you know, the, the legal system. And, you know, even if tribes do have quantified settled water rights, um, you know, or, or part of their water rights quantified and settled, they often don't have access to the infrastructure, don't have the infrastructure to get that water to, uh, you know, to their reservation, to their to their people. Um, like, you know, I mentioned right. earlier, the Navajo Nation with COVID, right? Um, one of the major uh, reasons that COVID hit the Navajo Nation so hard was that, you know, people don't have clean, safe drinking running water, they have to travel, in many cases, hours to go fill up a tank for their week's worth of water, right? And so yes. um, getting that that infrastructure there uh, to provide water for these communities is really um, central and important to what needs to happen in the West. Yeah, and just getting that that water there is staggering to those of us who have never had to worry about this, the scarcity of water. Um, and having driven through the Navajo Nation several times. Um, it really is. Uh, it's really big. <laughs> I was amazed at how large it was the first time that I went there. Um, and I only saw, you know, a very small portion of it. But the infrastructure required to get water there is is mind boggling. You know, I think about what it would take to do that. Um, mm -hmm. And it's a lot like those aren't those aren't little projects, but no. Right, right. Yeah, there's quite a push to have that happen now. You know, there's there's legislation moving, et cetera, to get that infrastructure built. Um, but it's something, as you pointed out, we know how to do, right? And that brings us to our fourth hallmark of Western water, which is this large scale infrastructure. Uh, we mm -hmm. know how to build things in the West. And a lot of those things are, you know, they're things like interstate highways, sure, but a lot mm -hmm. of those things are dams. Uh, and and the kind of large scale infrastructure like pipelines or tunnels or, or aqueducts that convey that water to various places uh, for right. various uses within the West. Yeah. And so, again, I, I grew up um, in a small town in southwest Michigan, and it was very clear where we got our water from. You know, it was it was right nearby. Um, but there are a lot of places you could live in the West where you don't necessarily think much about where your water comes from, but it's from a good ways away. Yeah, growing up in Southern California, I grew up in a town called Thousand Oaks, about an hour north of LA. And, you know, it's on the, the western coast of California. And about, yeah. I think it's about 20% of Thousand Oaks water comes, it depends on the year, um, mm -hmm. comes from the Colorado River, right? Uh, wow. The width of the state away from us um, via the <laughs> right. Colorado River aqueduct um, and metropolitan uh, uh their, you know, infrastructure that serves the cities of Southern California. Right. Um, and I had no idea about that growing up. You know, I didn't, I didn't know where my water came from. Um, yeah. And then when I moved to Portland for college, uh, Portland's pretty wet, right? Um, Oregon still largely works on prior appropriation, but Portland itself, the Western side of the state's pretty wet. And our water came, you know, we knew where it came from. It came from Mount Hood, right? 
um, and mm-hmm. was really good quality. And you could go hike around the watershed. Parts of it were closed because of water quality, you know, and all that. But you knew where it came from. Um, and then now living in Boulder, Colorado, same, it's about 20%, I think, of our water comes from the Colorado River Basin, uh, mm-hmm. even though we're on the east side of the Continental Divide. Uh, so there's a large scale infrastructure system that gets that water across the continental or under through really in this case, the continental divide uh, and to the front range cities right out here. Yeah, I feel like after I moved out to the west and, and saw the west and became you know a bit more aware of the water out there, um, I really started to think about uh, Aldo Leopold. So he says that there are two spiritual dangers in not owning a farm. One being the danger that uh, thinking that breakfast comes from the grocery store and the other thinking that heat comes from the furnace. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think he he shows himself as an Easterner pretty well there, because I think there's a third one for folks out in the West, which is thinking that water comes from the tap. Right. And I mm-hmm. think that um, a lot of us in the East didn't you know, don't get that until we get out in the West, right? We, we don't have, we, there's that spiritual danger of not knowing where your water comes from and not being aware of the infrastructure necessary uh, to get that water from its source to your tap. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or to a farmer's field or to whatever, yeah. you know, its use might be. Yeah. 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 And the basis for all of this infrastructure or one of the major, um, for this infrastructure is the Reclamation Act, National Reclamation Act of 1902. Mm -hmm. So this was passed uh, early 20th century when um, there was a call for the uh, federal government to help with the cost, the construction of infrastructure in uh, irrigation infrastructure in the West. Um, And the Reclamation Act created the Reclamation Service, which eventually became the Bureau of Reclamation, which it's still called today. The name was changed in the 1920s. Um, And the Reclamation Act is the statutory authority for the large-scale infrastructure construction in the West. So when we talk about reclamation in this way, what, what do we mean with that word? Yeah, I think that in the East, if you hear it, it probably has to do with um, reclaiming, you know, wetlands or swampland and right. making them possible to, you know, build on, right? Um, right. Uh, to filling, uh, dredging and filling, you know, harbors or, or increasing land base. Um, in the West, as we touched on earlier, you know, it's this idea that, that it's possible to make the desert bloom, right? Mm-hmm. That land can be reclaimed by application of water and it can become this kind of, you know, blossoming paradise, right? In the uh, 19th century, there was this idea that rain would follow the plow, that if, uh, you know, Uh. settlers started plowing, it would somehow release something from the soil and it would create, you know, more precipitation. That's obviously not true. Um, But it was a big thing that boosters really, who were trying to promote Western settlement, right, often land speculators, um, to get folks to move out to the West that, oh, no, no, don't worry about the precipitation issue, right? If you start plowing, we're going to, we're going to change this. This idea that, um, you know, there can be, uh, that reclamate that aridity can be fixed, right? That right. it can be changed, um, and that the desert can be made to bloom through application of you know ingenuity and hard work. And so, so it's this idea that we can reclaim this land that is seen at the moment as not terribly useful. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And um, you know, this this effort started pretty small scale after the Reclamation Act. There wasn't a ton of money in the Reclamation Fund that was created okay. by. The Reclamation Act, um, 
But it wasn't until Hoover Dam and the Great Depression that the Reclamation Service, then by then the Bureau of Reclamation, really took mm-hmm. off. There were some smaller scale stuff before that. You know, there's um, uh, Roosevelt Dam on the Salt River in Arizona right. was one of the first projects under the Reclamation Act. And, you know, that was a pretty big dam at the time. I don't remember exactly how tall it is, maybe a couple hundred feet. Um, and there were some other projects throughout the West in Nevada and um and I think Montana had some early ones as well. Uh, but with the construction of Hoover Dam at the time, it was called the Boulder Canyon Dam um, right. and the Great Depression, right? Hoover was a uh, piece of infrastructure that hadn't been seen on the scale in the United States before. Hoover yeah. was this, this huge piece of infrastructure that, you know, stopped the Colorado River uh, in its tracks, right? The Colorado, because of really huge catastrophic floods that destroyed um, towns and property and crops, et cetera, in uh, the Imperial Valley in the early 20th century, right? The Colorado mm-hmm. was often compared to a wild Mustang and a balsa corral, you know, that couldn't be yeah. controlled, couldn't be harnessed. Um, but with the construction of Hoover Dam, uh, this this kind of, you know, raging wild creature was tamed, right? right? It was, you know, made to do the bidding of people. And this is, <sighs> you can find all these kinds of characterizations of this in the writings of the day from the, you know, early 20th century to the, you know, 1930s. It's so funny how that idea sounded so incredibly appealing to folks there. But, mm-hmm. you know, talking about uh, taming this wild Mustang is, is is heartbreaking to me. You know, mm-hmm. I, I think of a Mustang in a, in a balsa corral as a, a wonderful thing. Right. Uh, but but again, if you're trying to build your idea of the West, you need to take out the wildness. Right. You need to you need to tame it and you need and you need to calm it down. And again, this is another one of those points where looking back, I can say I why didn't we just leave it wild, right? But uh, but it was it was done with the goal of protecting the this land and you know and, and a goal of making it livable in the the way that people understood land to be livable. Right. Yeah. You know, there's really fertile soil in the Imperial Valley, um, and when the infrastructure, the towns, the you know, and lives, I believe, in that flood were lost. I can't remember exactly what the consequences were. Um, right. There was basically a constant flood from 1905 to 1907 um, when the Colorado River bl- broke through a levee, a series of levees and ditches um, and flooded the Imperial Valley and created what we know of uh, today as the Salton Sea there. Mm-hmm. Um, right. That was a real danger to lives and livelihood and property and, you know, and the economy. Right. Um, and so the the goals of Hoover Dam were um, flood control, right? Because um, even though this is a, a dry, arid landscape, you could get these really big floods that, you know, could take out towns and cities, et cetera. Right. And then also because it's dry, right, to create these storage buckets for water for the dry times or the dry times of the year, right, to meet out that yeah. irrigation water uh, and deliver it to and eventually to, you know, municipalities as well. Um, right. So flood control, you know, irrigation systems, etc. With the construction of Hoover Dam, we also saw other large pieces of infrastructure like Grand Coulee Dam on the Columbia River, you know, Glen Canyon Dam also on the Colorado River. And we really see this kind of the era of big dam building and big, not just dams, but other infrastructure, you know, like right. um, aqueducts and conveyances and pipelines, et cetera. Um, from about, you know, kind of the heyday of this is the 1930s, right? This gets mm-hmm. wrapped up in the, you know, New Deal response to the Great Depression, even though Hoover Dam was authorized in the late 20s, um, that showing that America can do these, you know, big things in the midst of a yeah. national um, and even global crisis, right? 
Um, and that lasts from about the 1930s to about the 1970s. Um, and okay. the 1970s is when we start to see, right, the modern Amer uh, American environmental movement starts up kind of, I would argue, um, the mid 1950s uh, okay. and really, you know, takes off in the 60s and 70s with the publication of Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, right? And in the 1970s, Carter published this, uh, President Carter published this like hit list of dams, or at least that's the way uh, it's been characterized yeah. uh, since then. Um, and so the the kind of political and public will wasn't really behind the construction of this large scale infrastructure anymore. And we kind right. of see that um, dam building uh, uh, die off starting in the um, and, and uh, particularly after some very um, high profile defeats of, of dams in the 1950s, 1960s um, on the Colorado River system, okay. like the defeat of Echo Park Dam in 1956, um, the defeat of two proposed dams in the Grand Canyon in the 1960s. Um, okay. So we see this kind of cultural shift and political shift then. These dams were not just important for their actual purpose, but they were symbolically important as these achievements that that as a country were able look at what we can do, right? And mm -hmm. and look at what we can do despite the fact that we're in the middle of a depression, despite the fact or despite the fact that we're in the middle of a world war, we can still dig in and build these giant things and change our landscape. We can we can mm -hmm. still still do this. And and it's amazing. How quickly, I mean, it's, you know, a matter of decades that it goes, that these things go from being a symbol of of pride and accomplishment to being, yeah, to being less popular, right? To, to, to being something that, that we're, we're skeptical of creating more of uh, for, mm -hmm. it's, it's almost like the symbolism sort of waned and, uh, and it became less important. We started to, to define our, our successes in other ways. Yeah, you know, and this is, there's a growing recognition in the second half of the 20th century um, with the rise of the modern environmental movement um, that, you know, on a national scale in American kind of public consciousness, of course, um, this was felt by many different communities, you know, throughout the 20th century, right, you have um, uh, you know, a lot of these, well, all of these structures are built on um, indigenous land, right? Yeah. Um, so that's one perspective. You know, you have a fight against Hetch Hetchy Dam in the um, early part of the 20th century, led by John Muir and the Sierra Club, um, mm -hmm. right? Because it was going to be built in a national park, in Yosemite National Park. Um, but you really see the sort of mainstream public sentiment um, embrace uh, rivers, embrace landscapes, embrace, you know, environmental ideas uh, beyond just, say, putting a, a river to work, right? Right. Um, this is due in part to the growth of um, outdoor recreation after World War II. There's a lot of factors mm. that go into that, but a lot yeah. more people are getting out, you know, like it's um, after World War II, it's possible to, and it becomes really popular in the 60s, to go spend your family vacation on a Grand Canyon rafting trip, right? Right. That was not popular or mainstream you know, 10 years before that, um, certainly not before uh, World War II and, and a large part of that, which is, again, a whole other podcast, but the advent of um, uh, World War II surplus rubber rafts that makes it possible to carry yeah. people and make it much safer than using wooden boats. But you have more people. This is also because of, you know, the interstate highway system, because of increased prosperity post World War II, right, that um, allows Americans to buy a car, to go on a road trip, to go, you know, see America first, as 
you know, there yeah. was a slogan for that, um, and visit national parks, visit public lands. And so there's this growing appreciation from that of, hey, this landscape can be used for and appreciated uh, for other reasons than, you know, hydropower and irrigation. Also, I, I think right around that time, some people are probably starting to see the desert and see the more arid portions of the West as beautiful in their own right and, and starting to look at them as something that can be appreciated and enjoyed, that these places are special and important on their own. And I, I feel like that's an interesting shift as well, going from this idea that we need to make the desert bloom, right, uh, to why don't we just enjoy the desert? Yeah, and this growing appreciation for the for public lands and, you know, yeah. recreation that can happen there. And yeah, exactly. And, you know, I want to say that we've kind of touched on this throughout, but also, right, this is the system we have, right? These dams, dams themselves aren't inherently bad, right? They're, um, you know, I've spent once... Um, floated across the length of Lake Powell on a solar powered raft at three miles an hour. And, you know, it was then Lake Powell's formed by Glen Canyon Dam on the Colorado right. River. And it's long been, you know, vilified by um, environmentalists, Edward Abbey, et cetera, right, as this yeah. um, river killing thing. And I was out there with some friends and we we're like, this is this is beautiful out here, right? We're having a lot of fun. Like I learned how to dive off our solar powered raft and because it was safe do so, you know, and right. um, like, I shouldn't like this, but I do. Environmental history, the history of the interaction between people and the environment is incredibly complex. And, yeah. you know, what we have created uh, are these hybrid systems, right? Um, we can't extricate people from nature, right? Um, right. Uh, and we've created this, this largely hybrid world, right? And this is the world that we live in. We have Glen Canyon Dam, we have the Colorado Big Thompson Project, which brings water from the West Slope from the Colorado River Basin to the Front Range, right? Um, yes. And so we can't really judge these things as good or bad. It's the system we have. Um, we can have feelings about that, certainly, right. um, as I certainly do. Um, but it's the system within which we can work. I'm not saying there shouldn't be, you know, changes to that system or there couldn't be changes to that system. But these were responses of, uh, you know, people doing often what they thought was the best thing they could at the time. It's it's tempting to to blame those folks and to and to say that this, this, that these systems were wrong or or are bad. But I think that it's it's a little bit of you know spilled milk, right? We, we there's no point in going back and and vilifying folks, you know. Yeah, yeah, you know, and I think the question now is, okay, we have this system, we have this legacy of the past. What do we do with it, right? Right. Um, how to how do we um, ensure environmental justice? How do we, you know, how do we right the wrongs and the inequities of the past that that we can and we should, right? Um, how do we use the system and you know in ways that are beneficial for all water users? That's right. you know people. That's agricultural producers, tribes, municipalities, right? That's fish, that's wildlife, that's the river yep. itself, right? That's recreationists. And, you know, where does the system need to change? How can it change? You know, how can we improve on this? How can we make changes uh, for the West, make a more water secure region for everyone, right? Equitably in the face of right. climate change and increasing aridification. Um, how do we, you know, create thriving or restore thriving ecosystems, right? How do we keep the agricultural economy thriving, right? Um, and yeah. not dry up agricultural land, right? These are all uh, the kind of questions that we'll get into as we get into this series. Right. And all, and all the while, we want to 
avoid being those people that, you know, in a hundred years, people look back at and say, what were they thinking? <laughs> you know, and I, I think that's, that's constantly a, a, a trick, right? Is, is knowing that, you know, people were making decisions a hundred years ago and some of them were good and some of them were bad. And, um, but we're trying to make those decisions now and trying to Im improve, you know, both the, the, the ecosystems, both the, the ecology out there and also the, the way that people can live and the way that we can manage the balance between what can feel like a bunch of competitive uses. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And that's what TU does really well, right, is, is find those collaborative solutions, talk to all water users, you know, f how do we, how do we identify common shared goals and how do we work towards those goals? Um, you know, there's plenty of um, both challenges and opportunities in the West. And I think we've kind of touched on these throughout this discussion. Um, but to keep these in mind as we move forward into our, our next, you know, five episodes after this, uh, first is climate change, right? We have an increasingly there's there's um, a push for calling it aridification rather than drought, right? Because this uh, yeah. seems how dry it is in the West and getting drier seems to be a, a long term um, situation now rather than drought, which implies more temporary right. um, issues of equity and, and inclusion. Of course, right? We talked about tribal water rights, the need to settle those those unsettled water rights, right? To to construct the infrastructure to get clean running water available and accessible to all people. Um, you know, uh, same for urban areas, right? Or other populations right. who don't have access to these resources. Um, and these resources can also be outdoor recreation, uh, right? And connection um, uh, to to these places and time in these places. Um, another challenge is, is the ecological health of the river systems throughout the West, right? How do we balance these, what seem like competing water uses uh, to find these win-win situations that one of those wins goes to the environment as well. Right. Um, and then how do we do this while working with the aging infrastructure that we have in the West? Like a lot of the infrastructure in the West is at least 50, maybe 100 years old. Right. Uh, and so how can we you know, address the challenges of this aging infrastructure while also, um, you know, making it responsive to these 21st century challenges and opportunities? Uh, yeah, it's a it's a challenge, right? It's, it's, it's a big challenge. Just a, just a few things to keep in mind as we try and, yeah. and try and figure out where we go from here. Yeah, well, next episode, we'll talk more about this idea of uh, moving from conflict over water to collaboration uh, with water, which doesn't mean that there's no conflict, but it means that we can have hard conversations, right? We can do hard things and hopefully yeah. find these win win win, you know, uh, outcomes for everyone involved. Wonderful. I'm, I'm excited to, to keep talking. Great. Right. Looking forward yeah. to it. Hi, everyone. Brennan here. Thanks for listening to the first episode of Western Water 101. We really hope you enjoyed it. We've got more episodes on their way, and Sarah also wrote an online introduction to Western Water that you can find at tu.org slash WW101. Check it out for more history and insight into water in the West. We're also planning up a follow-up episode where we'd like to answer any questions you may have. So, if you've got questions, please hit us up via email at ww101.tu.org. Again, that's ww101.tu.org. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you next time.